Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John. For those of you who are new to our fellowship or haven't been here for a while, today marks the third week as we take a close look at the Gospel of John. You may know that the Gospel of John is described as the Gospel of Belief. The thesis or the purpose of the Gospel of John is clearly spelled out in the 20th chapter, which talks about how these things which are the words of John's Gospel were written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, receive eternal life. That's important, isn't it? And so this morning we find ourselves in chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 19 through 34 together today. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in whichever version you have with you this day. John 1, 19 from the New American Standard Bible. And this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said then to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. A Buddhist monk made this comment to a Christian friend of his about Christianity. He said this, It appears to the Eastern religious that Christianity has reached the stage in adolescence when the child is slightly ashamed of his father and embarrassed when talking about him. Wow, that hurts a little bit, doesn't it? That would be the impression that Christianity in the West makes on a representative of Eastern religion. So the question for us is, how can we overcome our embarrassment, if that happens to be our perspective, about our relationship to God through Jesus Christ? 
Well, John the Baptist's example helps us in this matter. He was indeed an effective witness to the person of Jesus Christ. And he gives us a clear picture of what it would be like if we likewise are to reach a place of effectiveness in our witnessing. In this passage of Scripture, there are two simple things that emerge that each of us can grasp with our minds and hopefully apply in our lives so that we can become effective witnesses. The first one is this, that in order to be an effective witness, we must forget about ourselves. John the Baptist is a picture of this. And let's begin reading in verse 19 again and work our way through the entire passage before us this morning. John 1.19 says, And this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, glance down the page to verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Sometimes our effective witness is aborted, made incredibly difficult because of the pressures which other people put upon us. And particularly people who are religious. Now understand, this delegation which had been sent from Jerusalem was sent, as we read in chapter 119, from the Jews. And this reference to the Jews is one of 70 references in the Gospel of John to the Jews. Most often, this phrase refers negatively to the leadership of Judaism in Jesus' day. It was not talking about all those who were descended from Abraham. It was a very small sample of all the people. There were 70 who made up the Sanhedrin. And there were probably scores more who were closely associated with the members of the Sanhedrin. 70 men who judged the internal affairs of Israel in Jesus' day. This group of people sent two groups of people to inquire or interrogate John the Baptist as to why he was baptizing. And they're described here in verse 19 as the priests and the Levites. The high priestly family was the family which was descended directly from Aaron. You may remember in the book of Exodus how... Moses was told by the Lord to institute the role of the high priest and that Aaron, his older brother, would serve in that capacity and his descendants after him would. And that had been the case all down through the ages in the history of Israel since Aaron assumed that position. Only those people could do the heavy lifting, as it were, regarding the ritualistic performance of sacrifices in the temple. There were other priests who were at another echelon. They were a lower caste, if you will, of priests. They didn't have the social standing that the high priest family had, the descendants of Aaron, rather. But they were also accompanied on this visit to John the Baptist by Levites. Now, who are Levites? Well, they're descendants of one of the sons of Jacob by the name of Levi. Now, remember, Aaron was a descendant of Levi as well. But these Levites couldn't even be involved in anything related to the rituals of sacrifice in the temple 
The reason for that, God says, I just want the descendants of Aaron to do this. But they did things like open the doors, keep the facility up to snuff as far as the cleanliness and that sort of thing. They were musicians in some cases. They were also the ones who comprised the temple guard. Do you remember when Jesus was approached to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? That he was approached by what is called the temple guard. And this temple guard was made up of Levites. So some of the people who came might have actually been part of the temple guard. We don't know that for sure. And in verse 24, the scripture says they had been sent from the Pharisees. So we know who the Pharisees were. They were laymen. There were about 6,000 Pharisees, according to Josephus, who was an historian of the Jewish people at this time. About 6,000 laymen. And they were people who saw themselves as guardians of orthodoxy, right understanding of the law. They were people who, by and large, had control over the teaching in the synagogues scattered throughout the area of Palestine, the nation of Israel. And all over the world there were synagogues. And Pharisees were the ones who felt themselves to be responsible for safekeeping of the orthodox teaching. So here we see a group of people, religious people, who come to John the Baptist and they're inquiring about the authority and where it comes from for baptizing. And they wanted to know. And what was happening was phenomenal because there was this revival of repentance that was spreading like wildfire all over Palestine, and it was due to the preaching of this one man, John the Baptist. Now, let me pause and make note of something. John the Baptist was a Levite. And John the Baptist was actually in line to be a priest. Not a high priest, but a priest. Remember that his father, Zechariah, was A descendant of Levi. He was a priest. So John the Baptist was in that line. But John the Baptist was not exercising his gift in the area of priesthood. He was a prophet. He was the last of a long line of great men and women of God who had prophesied. He was a great prophet. And he was baptizing. And they're coming. And they're trying to put some pressure on him. And this is something which keeps us from focusing where we need to do and keeps us from forgetting about ourselves. Have you ever become self-conscious in the presence of somebody who is supposed to be somebody religiously and you just sort of feel like you're inferior in the presence of such people or get outside the realm of religion just in the world? When you get in the presence of somebody who is somebody in the eyes of the world... Do you sort of wilt a little bit and begin to worry about what impression you might be making upon this person? Or if you were to share Christ with a person who is from a stratum of society that is not your stratum of society, do you ever feel like you just don't quite deserve talking to that person about Christ? Sometimes that keeps us from doing what God wants us to do because we become very self-conscious. That was a pressure that John the Baptist perhaps felt. We don't really know that. But it's possible, and that could have been something that would have been a roadblock to his being an effective witness. But he didn't give in. They begin to question him. 
And we see his responses. It's clear cut here. He makes three negative responses to the question, who are you? And then after having done that, he makes three positive statements as to who he is. Let's begin with the negative responses which he gives, which are found in verses 20 and 21. And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. He was wanting them to know for sure that he was not the Messiah. Now, scholars believe that John the Baptist was orphaned rather early. From reading the Gospel of Luke, we know that John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, were in old age when he was conceived. And it's highly probable, they're never mentioned again after Luke chapter 1, it's highly probable that they died when he was still relatively young. It is suggested by some, based upon the way in which he dressed and the message which he brought, that he might have found himself under the care of a group of people known as the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of people that were like monks in today's religious setting, and they lived in a communal setting on the Dead Sea. You perhaps have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the greatest find in the 20th century archaeologically, and really maybe since hundreds of years before that were the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they contain lots and lots of scrolls which had the Old Testament, as we describe it, written on them, and other writings also. And among the other writings from the community where they live, which is known as the Qumran community, were writings about the Messiah, a lot of writings about the Messiah, and also about the prophet. We'll get to that in just a moment. But assuming that John the Baptist possibly, if not probably, had an acquaintance and maybe even a residence in the Qumran community, he would be very familiar with those teachings. And he would know that there was the expectation that there would be two Messiahs, really, A royal Messiah and a priestly Messiah, and then this prophet. So, he was a person who knew about the Messiah. And so, when he says, I'm not the Christ, he was very emphatic. The way we know he was very emphatic is the way in which he said it. In the language of the New Testament, if you really want to emphasize something... Using a pronoun, you actually state the pronoun itself rather than allow the pronoun to be found in the verb. I think in Spanish there is a similar possibility. Cannot you say in Spanish, Spanish, I have without using soy? Can you do that? Right? Can you? The word for I? You can, of course. And the same is true in the Greek language. When you really want to emphasize something in the Greek language, the language that the gospel is written in and that John would have known when he says, I am not the Christ. He puts the emphasis upon I and not. I'm not the Christ. He did not want anyone to think that he was the Christ. He was not laboring under some delusion as to who he was. We're going to see who he is in just a few moments. So in response to the question, he first says, I'm not the Christ. Now look at 21. And they asked him, What then are you, Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Now, what's all this business about Elijah? In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the prophet Malachi, who was the last recorded prophet in the Old Testament, 
says that in the last days, in the days when the Messiah will come, there will be someone who will come before him, and he does not leave it to the imagination as to who that person would be. Elijah would come. Now, John the Baptist is not Elijah. But what we do know, when the angel came to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, predicting that he and his wife would have a child in their old age, and that child would be the forerunner of the Messiah, he said, that child of yours will come in the spirit, with a little s, and power of Elijah. What does that mean? What it means is, he will be like Elijah in his fervor for the Lord and in the power that will come forth in his life. And certainly, John the Baptist was that kind of Elijah, but he was not Elijah in the flesh. Now, let's pause a moment and consider who the author of the Gospel of John was. Although the author himself does not name himself, as we work our way through the book of John, what we will discover is the author speaks of a disciple whom Jesus loved. It's agreed among scholars and has been from the first century of the Christian church after this book was published, if you will, that that person was John the Apostle himself. He was making a very oblique reference to himself or a very slight reference to himself. And he was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that experience? When Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mount, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration, while they were there, all of a sudden, two people showed up. And who were those two people? Moses and Elijah. John, the evangelist, saw John the Baptist and Moses, who had come out of heaven to have fellowship with Jesus. And in that experience, John, the evangelist who wrote the book, would have a visual on Elijah. This John also is probably referred to in verse 35 of chapter 1. Would you look down to verse 35 for a moment? And the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, these two disciples, one is named Andrew, the other remains unnamed. Scholars also agree that this is a reference to John. Once again, John the Evangelist downplays himself. Just as we're going to see in a moment, John the Baptist downplays himself in relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. John the Apostle, the Evangelist, the writer of the Gospel of John, would have known if John the Baptist was the incarnation of John of Elijah because he had seen Elijah. So, there was no mistake about it. This man, John the Baptist, was not Elijah. He was like Elijah in spirit and in power, however. And he said, of course, I'm not. Now, let's look at the last question which is posed to him in verse 21. Are you the prophet? And this is referring to Moses' prediction, God's through Moses, actually, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, that there would be a prophet like Moses who would come on the scene 
at some point in the future in Israel. He would be a powerful prophet. And surely, John the Baptist was a powerful prophet, but he said, no, I'm not. Now, before I go any further, let's notice the way in which John the Baptist responds to the question, who are you? First of all, he says, I'm not the Christ. So he uses five words there. When he's asked, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. He's getting shorter in his response, right? I am not. Three words. And then lastly, are you the prophet? He says, no. Now, why do I point this up? This is why. It's because he felt uncomfortable talking about himself. It's not because he had low self-esteem. It's because he knew who he was. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one who was blazing the trail for Jesus. Jesus was the one he was most interested in. He was not interested in himself. He didn't hate himself. He understood what his purpose was. And having said this, let's read verse 22 and 23. They said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? They were feeling some pressure, were they not? Remember, the priests and the Levites sent from the Pharisees. They were from the lower echelon of people of authority and social standing within this religious structure during Jesus' day. So they were feeling like, hey, we've got to take an answer back to the Sanhedrin. We've got to give the leaders of the Jewish people an answer or our gooses will be cooked. We'll be up a creek without a paddle. And then they say, what do you say about yourself? This is interesting. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. A voice. Can one see a voice? No. You can only hear a voice. Correct? And this tells us that John the Baptist had mastered the art of forgetting about himself, which made him the excellent candidate for being an expert witness of Jesus Christ. The same is true for you and me. We, as we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's not that we are like the Eastern religionists who say the goal of all mankind is to migrate back to the Godhead and then finally be absorbed into the Godhead and just be part of that impersonal Godhead, and lose our own personality. That's not what Christianity teaches. Remember that Elijah and Moses, when they came back, were Elijah and Moses. They were identifiable. They maintained and retained who they were in the economy of God. So, don't misunderstand. The Christian faith is not about obliterating yourself. It's about offering yourself to the Lord and getting lost in relationship to Him to the degree that you don't get so self-centered. Self-centeredness goes away gradually as we go forward. And the most exceptional witnesses for Christ, the most effective witnesses for Christ, and all of us have this capacity. If we know Christ, we have this capacity. We forget about ourselves. We're focused not on ourselves. 
Well, let's read a little further. In verse 25. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. So here's the second positive thing which he says about himself. He says three negatives. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And then he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he adds to this now, he is one who baptizes in water. He says, I'm the baptizer in water. Now, one of the reasons his baptism created such a stir in the nation, but particularly in the religious establishment, is this. That heretofore, no one was baptized by someone else. They baptized themselves. This morning, when Annie was baptized, I was the baptizer, and she was the baptizee. In the days of Jesus in Judaism, when someone would come from another religion and become a proselyte, a convert to the Jewish faith, part of that ritual would be to baptize himself or herself, just to immerse oneself underwater and come back out of the water. But John the Baptist was doing the baptizing himself. And this is the way he describes himself. I am he who baptizes in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Now, here's an interesting observation. Among you, and that really means in the middle of you. Now, who was that person? Here is John the Baptist, maybe even baptizing when this delegation from Jerusalem came. Levites and priests, they come and he's baptizing. I mean, there are people coming to him, the Bible tells us, from Jerusalem. That's a long way, a long walk from Jerusalem to the Jordan River where he's baptizing. From Jerusalem, Judea. And all the regions around the Jordan River, I mean, the people were flocking to him. And all of a sudden, this group shows up and they begin to interrogate him. He stops for a moment to answer their questions. There's not a long interchange, so it doesn't interrupt him for a long time. But he says, there stands among you one whom you do not know. Who would that one be? It was Jesus is who it was. He's standing there. Among you there stands one whom you do not know. He goes on to say about that one. And in so saying, he says another thing about himself. Verse 27, he says, It is he who comes after me, the thong whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So he says, I'm only a voice. That's a statement of self-forgetfulness, isn't it? He says, I'm just a baptizer in water. And then he makes this statement. He says, I'm not worthy. I'm unworthy to take his sandal off. What's that all about? Well, the rabbis of this day, when they were expounding upon Leviticus 25, 39 and 40, which has to do with the duties of an Israelite slave, meaning an Israelite who is a slave, the rabbis of Jesus' day had said 
that one of the things that no Israelite, even a slave Israelite, would be required to do would be to take off the shoe or the sandal of another Israelite. And especially not to wash the feet of such a person. So he says, I'm not even worthy to do what a non-Jewish slave would do. That's what he's saying about himself. He was forgetful of himself. All this suggests to us that the reason John the Baptist was such a successful witness is because he forgot about himself. Now, I can tell you from personal experience that there have been times in my life when I had a hard time forgetting about myself when I was witnessing about Jesus. I'm talking particularly about one-on-one or in a non-church building setting. It's not always that I'm lacking consciousness about myself when I'm teaching about Christ from the Word of God here. But it's a little more relaxed here than it is in the public arena sometimes. But I know there have been times when I've just so thought about myself too much and it just blew the whole thing completely. So rather than thinking about myself, I need to forget about myself. And the alternative, I know, you will see in just a moment after we look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. These things took place in Bethany. And when you think of the name Bethany, what do you think of? Not a person probably, but a place. Some people whom you know are probably named Bethany. It's a beautiful name. But it's a place. What comes to mind when you think of the place Bethany? Usually you think of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, don't you? Well, where was Bethany in proximity to Jerusalem? The Bethany where these three friends of Jesus lived. It was on the outskirts of Jerusalem, a little south and east of Jerusalem. Not very far at all. Notice what the writer says about this particular Bethany. It's beyond the Jordan. Do you know what that means? It's on the west side of the Jordan River. East side, rather. From the western perspective, it's on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, here's what it has to do. It doesn't have anything to do with being a good witness. Perhaps it doesn't. Maybe there's some application someone could find. But this is what it would say to us. The Bible is a Bible that is a credible Bible. These little tidbits that the writer puts in are evidence that he knew Palestine in Jesus' day. And that area... Beyond the Jordan that was called Bethany was a place that Jesus, we're going to see if we get to the 10th chapter, how Jesus went there to hide out because there was an attempt to take his life. He and his men went up and hid out. You'll read about it in the last part of the 10th chapter of John. And it actually is the vantage point from which Joshua led the children of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. Do you know what Jesus' name would have sounded like in Aramaic? Yeshua. Joshua. That's who Jesus was. Joshua in his home, he was known as Yeshua. Not Jesus, as we would say, of course. We've got a different language. But he is the new Joshua. And Jesus is going to lead the people of God 
into a new promised land, into a new covenant. And John the Baptist understood that. He was baptizing people in that region, probably for the reason that that's where the people had crossed into the promised land to begin with. So we're to forget about ourselves. Anybody have trouble with that besides me? It's hard, isn't it? Here's what we're to do, positively. We're to focus on Christ. That's what John the Baptist was all about. He was focused on Christ. I am a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. His message was simple. It was clear. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, look at verse 29. John the Baptist had rested overnight, and the next day, I'm sure during the night he had pondered the interaction he had had with the religious leaders, but the next day he saw Jesus coming to him. Now let's stop here just a moment. Did he seek Jesus out? He did not, did he? Jesus sought him out. He saw Jesus coming to him. We often talk about, I came to Jesus, I came to Jesus, I came to Jesus. And Jesus does say, come to me. But Jesus always takes the initiative in relationship. Last week we looked at John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. All those pronouns refer to Jesus. If we trust Christ, we welcome him, we become children of God. But we're not born of blood, that means of human descent. We can't bank on our heritage to get us into heaven. We're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. That means desire, strength of will. We're not born into the family of God that way, nor the will of man, not by passion, but of God. Now, think about John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist have a rich heritage? Did he have a good bloodline? He had an excellent heritage, an excellent bloodline. But that did not get him into heaven, did it? Any more than it would get you and me into heaven. Did John the Baptist have a lot of willpower? Well, I would say so. His lifestyle reflected it. He was very austere in his lifestyle. He denied himself this, that, and the other. He was a Nazarite under a vow. He only ate honey and locusts. There's a suggestion that he wouldn't even have eaten bread. We don't know that for a fact. But he was self-denying. Was he a passionate man? By all means, he cries in the wilderness. It's not like crying tears. He's shouting the gospel of Jesus Christ when he speaks. So we need to understand, we come to the Lord because he first came to us. He comes to us. And He enables us to be born again as we receive Him and welcome Him into our lives. And look at this tremendous saying. This is one that resonates in your heart, mine. We sang about this in preparation for our reading and studying of the Word of God. Verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Allow me to make some observations. Let's begin with the whole idea of the Lamb of God. What was in John's mind when he makes this statement about Jesus? Well, there's no way to know for sure. But probably he had in mind 
Abraham taking Isaac to Mount Moriah to obey God who told him to take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him there. And when they get there, at the foot of the mountain, Abraham tells the servants who had accompanied him and Isaac there, you guys stay here, we're going up and we're going to worship. That's an odd thing for a father to say when he's about to sacrifice his son, isn't it? We're going up there to worship. And as they work their way up that Mount Moriah, Isaac says, Behold, Father, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where is the lamb? And what did Abraham say? The Father will provide the lamb. And he did, didn't he? Abraham raises the knife to take the life of his son. And then an angel grabs his arm. That probably is part of the background of this concept of the Lamb of God. Also, in addition to that, the Passover lamb probably is in the background here. You know the story. When the time came for the final victory of releasing Egypt, uh, excuse me, the Israelites from Egypt, there was the visitation of the death angel and... God had instructed every family in Israel to take a lamb and gave specific prescription of what age and what kind of lamb and to sacrifice it and put the blood over the lentils and the doorpost. And and the angel of the Lord came over and if the blood was there, what happened? This is the idea of Passover. The angel of death passed over. Why? Because the blood had been shed. The blood of a lamb had been shed for those people. That's probably the background. Maybe also in the background would be what we read in the book of Exodus, that morning and evening, every day in the history of God's people, from the day that the Ark of the Covenant was formed, the tabernacle was formed, then later the temple, every day there would be sacrifices for sins in Israel every day. Morning and evening. That probably is the background. And there would be lambs involved. That probably is part of the background. Then we read from Isaiah 53. And and let me ask you to go there with me. Let's read some of the things which are said about the suffering servant. This figure who looms large in prophecy, especially... We see things about him in Isaiah. We'll look look at verse 4. And I'll draw attention to something as we read through these next three verses. 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Now notice this interplay. Our griefs, who bore them? He. That's a way of saying he took them away. The Lamb of God does what? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. And our sorrows He carried. See the interplay? We ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us... Like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So, the Lamb of God is the one who becomes the substitute 
for our sin. He becomes the person who is punished for our sin. He was perfect. He was God. And He was man. And He voluntarily substituted for you and me to take all of our sin upon Him. And let's read verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, look what the text says, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Jesus was taken away. So, let's look here. This reference... I'm sure has to do with Isaiah 53 and probably all the other things which I mentioned and probably any reference to any sacrifice of a lamb in the Old Testament system. But behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this idea of taking away does not simply mean He bears the burden of our sin, but He wipes them out so that Now, this is just amazing. So that God says in Jeremiah 31, 34, and this is quoted by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 17. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. What does that say to you? When Christ became the Lamb of God and He was punished as our substitute for our sin. The result of that was not only did he bear our sins in the sense of the punishment, but he wiped the memory of it away from God. And therefore, when you labor as a follower of Christ with guilt, and you have brought your sin before the Lord, you've confessed your sin. And you have repented of your sin. What we know is it's forgotten. It is gone. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew he couldn't give that statement about himself. Only one was qualified to do that. And that was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, when you and I are sharing the gospel with people, do you know what the most powerful thing we can share with people is? It's the cross of Christ. It's what Christ did on the cross. It's the most powerful thing. The Bible says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There are people in this room that this whole message about Christ becoming the Lamb of God makes no sense at all. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We know it, do we not? We have experienced Him in our lives. And we know we've been set free. And we need to rest in the fact that He was the one who eradicated our guilt. He wiped the slate clean so that the Father cannot remember it anymore. When God the Father looks at you and me today, He sees us in Christ. He sees us as if, and this is hard to believe, but it's true, as if we were Christ. He knows we're not Christ. But He sees us in Christ. We are covered by the blood of Christ. What's that about? Are we smeared with His blood? Is that what that means? That's not what it means. 
Because the blood of Jesus, the blood of Christ, is a picture of the life of Christ. The Bible says in the book of Leviticus, the life is in the blood. In Leviticus 17. The life is in the blood. That's true of us. We could bleed out. I think I'm pretty healthy, but if somehow or another I had an artery cut and somebody didn't get to me quickly enough or I didn't know how to apply the right pressure, I could bleed out in a matter of minutes, couldn't I? I'd be dead. But we see that Jesus Christ has covered us with His blood. So that when the Father sees us, He sees us as washed clean. Behold the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Now, I won't linger long on this next comment, but I need to make it. The sin. It's not plural, is it? The sin. We typically think about sins. Not honoring our fathers and our mothers, making idols, putting other gods before God, taking the Lord's name in vain, murder, adultery, stealing, coveting, bearing false witness, not honoring the Lord by setting a day of rest aside. Those are sins, and they're reflective of the root cause, which is sin. You know what the bottom line of sin is? It's unbelief. The Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. The thing that is going to be the thing that sends people to hell for eternity is their unbelief. They do not trust in Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. And it's the sin of the world. Now, this is problematic for some people because obviously there are people in the world who aren't saved. But this says, if I understand it correctly, he takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was not the only one who said this. Paul said this. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. And then John the Evangelist says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, My little children, I write these things to you, so that if you sin, you have, may know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not only ours only, but for the whole world. Does that mean that everybody in the world is going to go to heaven because Christ died for the sins of the world? Absolutely not. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. The death of Christ as the Lamb of God was sufficient for all the world's sin, but only efficient in the lives of those who have received Christ into their lives. Well, let's move quickly through the rest of this passage. Verse 30, This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man. This is the first reference to man in the whole gospel. And it's highlighting that Jesus is not simply God, God, but He's also a human being who has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. This speaks of His deity. He pre-existed. And I did not recognize Him. I like this about John the Baptist. Here again, he's being very transparent. It's nice to have a teacher or preacher who's transparent, doesn't claim to have it all together. 
But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Now, let me stop here. This may be as far as we get today. But this is important for us to understand. Isaiah, I'll refer to him once more. Three different places, at least. In Isaiah 11.1, this is what the prophet wrote. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, talking about the Messiah. Then, in Isaiah 42, this is what God says. The spirit, my Spirit is upon him. I put my Spirit upon him. And then... In Isaiah 61, the Messiah himself says this. The servant says this. He said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So, Jesus is being baptized. And the dove descends out of heaven. And he rests upon Jesus. As we read just a little further. Let me read a little further. Because it speaks of this in more detail. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? Well, first of all, we need to ask, who does the baptizing? Who does the baptizing? Jesus, right? The Spirit doesn't baptize you. Jesus baptizes. That's what the Scripture says, right? And we want to know what Scripture says. Now, there are probably people present who have a viewpoint that differs from this viewpoint. But bear with me if you have a different viewpoint. It's the Scripture which dictates the terms of what's right and what's not right in our thinking. In the book of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, mark that down. Look at it if you want to. The Scripture says this, For in the Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And it goes on to say, And we were all made to drink of the one or same Spirit. Now, in the Spirit, we were all baptized. And do you know anything about the church at Corinth? If you know anything about that church, you know it was not a real mature church. It was rather immature. They had all kinds of problems. They were babies. They should have been mature, but they were babies in Christ. Read it carefully. And he says, all of you, all of you were baptized. And who did the baptizing? Jesus is the baptizer. When does that occur? Notice that nowhere in the New Testament are we told to be baptized in the Spirit. Nowhere. We are baptized in the Spirit, however. All of us, and in that particular work in 1 Corinthians, as I mentioned, there's a lot of irregularity, a lot of immaturity, not much like Christ in a lot of these people. But they were the most gifted church in all of the churches. Gifts do not equal maturity. The evidence of maturity is not gifts. The evidence of Christian maturity is the fruit of the Spirit. Which leads me to make this observation. We are, however, commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And make no mistake, 
Paul is the one who says, be filled with the Spirit. Paul is the one who talks about our all being baptized in the Spirit, into one body, all made to drink of the same Spirit. It's Jesus who does that. The Spirit, however, fills us. And we are to be filled with the Spirit. I read the New Testament this way. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by whom? The Holy Spirit. I believe when I received Christ, if I received Him, and I think it would be true of anyone, you have to name Him Lord. How shall a man be saved? Someone asked Paul and Silas, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be what? Saved. Not just believe on Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means you need to make Jesus Christ your Lord. And the only way I can say that with integrity, Jesus Christ is my Lord, is how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. He enables me to do that. He's the only one who does. So, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is also the Spirit giver, the Spirit baptizer. That happens when you're born again. It's two sides of the same coin. But... As we walk through this life, we lose the fullness of the Spirit. That's why the command, be filled with the Spirit, is in the present tense. And it's plural. All you are, you all keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I have to come before the Lord regularly. Every time I sin, I lose the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. I lose the fullness of the Spirit. Have you sinned lately? I, I don't keep track of it, but I sin every day, I know. And when I become conscious of it, I take it to the Lord, sometimes sooner than later and sometimes later than sooner. But I, I can't rest. I'm like David in Psalm 38:18, where he says, I have anxiety because of my sin. Do you ever have a panic attack because of your sin? Well, if you let it go too long, you'll be having one if you know Jesus. Because the great remover... Of sin is Jesus. There was the great removal. The Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. That took place on the cross. But the great inserter, the renewal, comes when the Spirit of God comes and lives in us. Now, I'm finishing this, and I want you to hear this. Not only has Christ taken care of the penalty of sin for our lives, but by inserting the Spirit of God in our lives, and read Ezekiel 36, 27. For some underpinning here. He has put the Spirit of God in your life if you know Jesus. He has removed your sin. You are not responsible for your sin anymore. He's removed that in terms of being judged for it at the judgment day. But He's also put the Spirit in me and in you for the express purpose of enabling us to overcome the power of sin in our lives. When we trust God... To receive Christ into our lives, He comes to live in us by His Spirit. The Bible says in Romans 8 9, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this is sobering, he does not have or belong to Christ. We belong to Jesus because Jesus has saved us and baptized us in the Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit regularly to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be controlled by, that's what it means. And it's to be the way in which we live. Not independently anymore. 
The Spirit came upon Jesus and remained upon Jesus. It came as a dove, came upon and remained. The word remain is a word which Jesus uses Throughout John 15, where he talks about the necessity of our abiding in Him. The Spirit abided upon Jesus, and Jesus abided in the Spirit. And that would be true for us as well. That's why Christ died for us. To eradicate the penalty of sin. But also, and this is huge for us, this is, this is where the rubber hits the road. Does Christianity make any difference? Well, it makes all the difference. Not just in the afterlife. We focus too much on the afterlife. That's important. But today matters. Today. And today we can live in the power of the Spirit of God because Jesus has baptized us in the Holy Spirit in addition to being the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the Word of God, the instruction which You give us, the example which You set for us, in John the Baptist. And Father, we confess to you today that we think way too much about ourselves. And it stands as a roadblock to our effective witnessing. Lord, help us to focus on Jesus. We know the Holy Spirit does that. He bears witness of Jesus. And because He lives in us, Lord, we ask that you'd fill us today. You'd control us, Lord. And you'd use us. To change the world in which we live by sharing the power of Christ with others and watch you change their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.